Yes. About a Girl is a production of iHeartRadio and Double Elvis. You know about Michael Jackson, the youngest and most gifted member of the Jackson 5, who would later become the king of pop, brilliant dancer and performer, a troubled icon who, a decade after his death, still remains an enigma. But this is not about Michael Jackson. This is about his close friend, it girl of her generation, and the woman who tried to help him through uncharted waters, Brooke Shields. This story is about a girl. When Michael Jackson and Brooke Shields met at the Academy Awards in March of 1981, both of them were at turning points in their careers. Both had been child stars, now on the cusp of adulthood. Both had been forced to grow up far too fast. She was 15, and he was 21. Michael arrived at the Oscars with Diana Ross, 14 years his senior, on his arm. He lived with her for a while when he was 11, just before the first Jackson 5 album had debuted, and he referred to her sometimes as his mother and sometimes as his girlfriend. This year, at 21, he just released his first solo album, and as a newly legal adult, he'd hired a lawyer to look into how his father had been mismanaging his earnings. As for Brooke, she was 15, and her latest movie, Endless Love, was about to be released. Her fifth film since her first starring role in 1978, when at the age of 12, she played a child prostitute. Her mother would soon launch a lawsuit against the man who'd elicited her consent to photograph Brooke nude for a Playboy publication when Brooke was 10. After the award ceremony, Brooke walked over to Michael and introduced herself. He knew who she was. By that time, Brooke was almost as ubiquitous a pop culture icon as Michael himself. He'd tell reporters later that she had been his celebrity crush, that he had her posters all over his bedroom wall. That might even have been true. At the after party, they hit the dance floor together, her in her high-necked silk dress, him in his tux. They exchanged numbers. For Brooke, there was something about Michael that she recognized. His shyness, perhaps, his slight stoop, the way his huge eyes seemed dangerously unguarded. He was a kindred spirit, a member of the same weird club she belonged to as long as she could remember. It wasn't easy to explain what it was like to be a child star to people who'd never lived it. And Brooke had never lived any other way. She had been too young to remember her first acting gig, 
an ivory soap commercial when she was 11 months old. This was normal to her. When she'd left the set of Pretty Baby, the movie in which she'd starred as a child sex worker, she'd cried her eyes out because she missed it so much. How could she communicate with people who didn't know what it took to keep from crying when Susan Sarandon slapped you across the face for nine separate takes? People criticized her mother for having let her take on a sexualized role so young. But Brooke hated it when people talked about her as a helpless victim. She had been a young artist, making art she understood very well. She knew what a prostitute was. She lived in New York. And Brooke's mother wasn't some abusive monster. She drank too much, it was true. And when she was drunk, she was mean. But she never beat Brooke or neglected her. Brooke saw herself and her mother as a team, and they'd just gone from one gig to another in the early years without thinking about how it would all add up in the eyes of the public. The Playboy shoot was a bad idea, of course, and especially in retrospect. Since she was famous now, the photographer might use that as an excuse to republish those photos. The flirty Calvin Klein TV ads she'd done when she was 14 where she'd murmured that nothing came between her and her Calvins. Well, she hadn't been aware of the double entendre at the time. But in general, she didn't have regrets. If anything, she felt worse about some of the clunkers she'd been cast in, like Tilt or Wanda Nevada. She wanted to be in Merchant Ivory pictures, not cheesy family flicks. It was a comfort whenever she met someone else her age who lived in this weird world of fame, someone who understood it from the inside. She and Michael started hanging out. They didn't talk much about their parents or their careers. Instead, when they hung out, they were like little kids. They watched movies at each other's houses and ate candy and giggled at each other's jokes. Sometimes they'd go out to eat at little hole-in-the-wall joints where no one would expect to see them. Each of them spent a lot of time being well-behaved in public, watching people around them act like lunatics. Fame seemed to bring that out in people. Meeting someone as famous as Brooke or Michael made people say weird stuff and do weird things. Brooke's mother had been adamant that she do right by her fans. She had to respond to every fan letter, and at public appearances, she had to sign autographs for everyone who asked, pose for every paparazzo's flashbulb. They were all individuals, her mother told her, and she mustn't alienate them. To keep herself entertained, Brooke made a private game of trying to time exactly when a stranger would approach her. Three, two, one, and yes, I'd love to sign an autograph. But when she was with Michael, those private jokes could be shared. Each of them could collect a novel's worth of crazy stories by just standing on a street corner for an hour. There was no one else they could tell those stories to, so they told them to each other and howled with laughter. It wasn't just members of the public either. It was other celebrities, adult celebrities. Michael was technically an adult, and other famous people were always making passes at him, trying to get him to sleep with them. Brooke made sure he understood that with her, there was no agenda. She didn't want anything from him. She just wanted to be his friend. Were they dating? Well, Michael sometimes told the press they were dating, 
A lot of people figured he was gay and using her as a beard. Others thought their romance was just supermarket magazine fodder cooked up for publicity. The reality was a little more complicated. For Brooke, dating was out of the question. Brooke and her mother were so enmeshed, she'd say later, that she wasn't able to have any romantic feelings for anyone. There just wasn't room in her life for any other kind of intimacy than the kind she and her mother shared. And while her career was built on her image as a sex object, it was also very important that she remain a virgin. She was America's sweetheart, her mother explained. Her mom liked Michael, though. He was gentle and sweet, not a threat. She treated him warmly when he came over, and sometimes Michael would wistfully tell Brooke that she was so lucky she could be so close with her mother. She'd met his family by then, and she'd realized that his father, Joe, was a very different kind of parent manager than her mother was. Brooke's relationship with her mother could be difficult, especially when she was drinking, which was most of the time. But Joe Jackson was the devil, she thought. That was the only way she could describe him. There were stories that would come out later. How Joe would yank out his glass eye and force the kids to stare into the empty socket. How he beat them with electric cords. The verbal humiliation he unleashed on Michael, especially. She didn't know all the details back then. But she could see the look in Michael's eyes after he'd tangled with his dad. Maybe that was part of why Michael seemed a little frozen, like he'd never quite made it to adulthood. He seemed happy to keep their friendship platonic. Only once, after they'd gone out, she was in her car ready to be driven away when he stuck his head through the window. She felt his lips smack into hers. She was shocked. When she got home, she called him and told him he was out of line. I don't know what you're trying to achieve, but it's going to mess up a lot of things, she said. You don't do that. What are you trying to prove? He told a reporter sometime later that the two had a moment in which they could have become intimate, but that he'd chickened out. Was he thinking of that kiss in the limo? That was never clear. So they weren't dating exactly, but they loved each other. That much, she was sure of. He told her he wanted them to be together always. He even gave her a ring to symbolize their friendship. It sparkles and you sparkle, he said. Their relationship didn't fit into a neat category. But to Brooke, it was perfectly natural. It was the least complicated thing in her life. In 1983, Brooke decided to put her career on hold. She was going to go to college like a regular person. She applied to Princeton and got in, but when she showed up on campus, she was overwhelmed. For the first time in her life, she and her mother were physically separated. And her college experience wasn't exactly typical, either. Paparazzi would hide in the bushes outside her classrooms, and they tried to bribe her doormates to take a picture of her in the nude. She got used to showering in a swimsuit, just in case. Nonetheless, the details of her life fascinated Michael. Instead of commiserating about the celeb life, now she was his foreign correspondent in the land of normal. As a young kid, he'd gone to public grammar school in between recording sessions. But after the Jackson 5 hit it big, when he was 11, he'd had to get a tutor instead. 
Going to college was an unattainable dream for him, and he wanted to hear everything. Football games, cafeteria menus, all of it. She was also finally really dating. She'd met a young man named Dean Kane, and they were together, even though it felt to her, vaguely, like she was betraying her mother. Michael wanted to know all about her relationship, too. He was six years older than her, but he asked about things like bases, as in first base, second base. It was like talking to a little kid. She wondered if anyone had really explained sex to him. He seemed very young and kind of terrified about it. She began to realize there was something odd about him, some kind of arrested development. Nonetheless, Michael was at the peak of his career that year. His next album, Thriller, had just come out in November of 1982. And by February, it became his first number one album and would stay at the top of the charts for over a year. It sold 32 million copies that year, and it still remains the best-selling album of all time. If Brooks' career had dimmed enough to make college life tenable for her, Michael was arguably more famous in 1983 than any single musician had ever been in the history of pop. Brooke flew out from New Jersey to be with him at the 1984 American Music Awards, too, where he cleaned up with eight prizes, the first big public event they went to together. She also accompanied him to the 1984 Grammys the next month, along with child actor Emmanuel Lewis and Bubbles, Michael's pet chimpanzee, so it wasn't exactly a date and watched him win a record-breaking eight Grammys. And in between, she came to the huge gala CBS Records threw for him to celebrate Thriller's success. At the Natural History Museum in Manhattan, as Billie Jean played over the loudspeakers, she hugged him on stage. His family was there that night, too. It was one of the last times Michael would meet in public with his brothers and father. She was trying to stay away from Joe when a reporter buttonholed her and asked her why she'd shown up. Was it her press agent's idea? Michael and I have been friends for years. I'm proud to be his friend. Then she went to find Michael. She took his hand, and they went off to look at the animal exhibits together, away from the crowd. Brooke graduated from Princeton in 1987, summa cum laude in French literature, and minus her virginity. She and Dean Kane had finally crossed that Rubicon, which didn't stop her from breaking up with him after graduation. But while she'd been in school, her star had faded. She wasn't a titillating woman-child anymore, and the film offers weren't coming in. Instead, she was relegated to filming instant coffee commercials in Japan while her mother got plastered back at their hotel. She had an ill-advised affair with Liam Neeson, who eventually bailed on her. He got on a plane, promised to call her when he touched down, and then never spoke to her again. She took acting classes, one of which turned out to be a front for a cult. Finally, she took a film role. Running Wild came out in 1992 starring Brooke, Martin Sheen, and two cheetah cubs. It wasn't exactly Merchant Ivory, but she liked getting to hang out with the cheetahs. Around this time, whispers were starting to circle around Michael. His career was still going strong. He'd released Dangerous in 1991, 
and embarked on an ambitious world tour. The people were starting to talk about his odd behavior, especially all the young boys he seemed to befriend. He was changing physically, too. Although he claimed to have only had two plastic surgeries, his skin was now paler than Brooks, and his nose had been reduced to a tortured-looking nub. In August of 1993, Michael was publicly accused of molesting a 13-year-old boy. The family pressed charges. A grand jury was convened. But by year's end, Michael had settled out of court with the boy's family for $25 million. Nonetheless, the fallout was huge. The tabloids, which already had knives out for Wacko Jacko, feasted on the accusations. The dangerous tour was cut short. Pepsi cut off his longtime endorsement deal. Only a few months before the allegations, in fact, around the time Michael had first met his alleged victim, Michael had appeared on the Oprah Winfrey show. He said that he and Brooke were dating, that they were keeping their relationship out of the public eye, that he loved her. It was true that they were still spending time together. Sometimes he talked to her about the life they could have together if they got married and started a family. Why don't we adopt a child together, he'd ask. He'd talk about sad orphan babies in Romania who needed homes. Brooke would always turn him down as gently as she could. You're always going to have my heart, she'd say. You have me for the rest of your life, as a friend. I'm going to go on and do my own life and have my own marriage and my own kids, and you'll always have me. By the spring of 1994, she'd begun a relationship with tennis player Andre Agassi. In a lot of ways, the things that drew her to him were the same things that had drawn her to Michael. Andre, too, knew what it was like to be managed by an overbearing parent and forced into the professional world as a child. We both had begun very young and had been defined by others before developing our own sense of self-awareness. We were mirrors of one another. At the same time, Michael had abruptly begun wooing Lisa Marie Presley, daughter of Elvis, and yet another child who'd grown up in the spotlight. He proposed to her on May 26, 1994. From one angle, his announcement on Oprah that he was dating Brooke and his sudden courtship of Lisa Marie barely a year later might look like awkward attempts to present a public image of normative heterosexuality, a corrective to the accusations that he was molesting young boys. He and Lisa Marie staged an incredibly awkward kiss at the 94 MTV Video Music Awards, as if to prove something to the world. From another angle, well, when people asked Brooke about it, she just said that Michael had always wanted a normal life, and Lisa Marie was someone he could identify with. They were all in the same little club. They were all famous children, struggling to grow up. The marriage to Lisa Marie lasted less than two years. A few months after the divorce was finalized, Michael married again, this time to his dermatological nurse, Debbie Rowe, who'd offered to bear his children. That was 1996. In 1997, Brooke and Andre got married. Michael begged her not to. He told her he wouldn't be able to handle it. Please, don't. You and me, we're going to be friends forever, she reassured him once again. But that wasn't true. 
Their lives drifted, but they were never totally out of touch. He was the first to call her when her father died in 2003. Later that year, when her first child with her second husband, Chris Henchy, was born, she fell into a terrible postpartum depression. Michael sent her flowers. But it became harder and harder for them to be friends. Brooke was finally integrating into normal life. She was doing shows on Broadway as a working actress, not a global icon. Her second husband hadn't been a child star. He had never been famous at all. He was just a writer with a great sense of humor who she'd met when she was out walking her dog. She and Michael went out to dinner less frequently. It was getting harder for him to leave Neverland, the safe amusement park home he'd built for himself. He just went deeper and deeper into his own world, a world that was strange and secluded and sealed. He didn't have a direct number. In the go-betweens she'd known either left or were fired. She wanted to get to know his three children, the two his second wife had birthed and the third he'd had from a paid surrogate. She wanted him to meet her daughters, but she didn't even know how to call him. A comeback tour, really, a nine-month concert residency in London was planned for 2009. Brooke heard that Michael was rehearsing for it intensely, despite his poor health, which was rapidly worsening to a degree that would only become known later. But on June 25, 2009, his doctor found him unconscious on the floor of his bedroom, not breathing. He was pronounced dead at the hospital at 2.26 p.m. He was 50 years old. As with everything in Michael's life, his death was shrouded in a haze of tabloid crosstalk. His doctor was eventually found guilty of manslaughter after Michael's death was linked to the powerful anesthetic propofol he'd been prescribed. But all kinds of other rumors flew. That he'd really overdosed. That he'd been murdered. That his doctor had been paid to kill him. That he'd faked his death and was still alive. That he'd actually been dead for years. In the midst of all of this, at Brooke's house, the phone rang. It was Michael's mother, Catherine. She wanted Brooke to speak at Michael's funeral, to give a eulogy. Why me? Brooke asked her. Catherine simply replied, You knew him. The funeral was held at the Staples Center, where just a few weeks ago he'd been rehearsing for the new show. Michael's casket was lined in blue velvet and plated in gold. Everyone who was anyone in the music industry was there, and his promotion company had given away 17,500 tickets to fans. Despite his controversies, Michael was still an icon, particularly for the black community who'd grown up with him. Stevie Wonder spoke. Kobe Bryant spoke. Magic Johnson spoke. Queen Latifah read a poem by Maya Angelou. There were intervals for performance and dancing. The whole thing was as slickly produced as any concert Michael had ever planned. When Brooke went up to the podium, she talked about how Michael had tried and failed to teach her to moonwalk, how they'd snuck into Elizabeth Taylor's bedroom the night before her eighth wedding in Neverland, giggling like naughty kids, to catch a glimpse of her Valentino dress. How simple things had always seemed when they were together. The crowd cheered and clapped as the casket was carried out. 
After the service, Brooke had a few cocktails at the reception. Then she spotted Joe Jackson, sitting with a bunch of much younger women. She walked over to him and got right up close. You never liked me. You never even pretended to like me. I never liked you. He looked up at her with bleary eyes. Thank you, she said. Thank you for your son. Your son changed the world and was my friend. And she walked away. Brooke's life moved on. In 2012, her mother died. Her daughters grew older. She did more Broadway, published a memoir, and landed a recurring role on Law & Order SVU. Then, in 2017, Calvin Klein reached out, asking her to model for them again at 52. It would be a throwback campaign recalling her iconic and controversial ads from when she was 14. She said yes. And so she wound up sitting in the front row at the Calvin Klein Collection Show at New York Fashion Week. There was a girl sitting next to her. A young model. She was beautiful. As beautiful as Brooke had been at that age, with tawny hair and startling light eyes. It was Michael's daughter, Paris. She turned and looked at Brooke. So, you're my dad's friend. Yes, I am. There was a little silence. Then Brooke said, I really miss your dad. Paris looked at her. Then she reached out and took Brooke's hand. Me too, she said. Whatever his personal failings, however tortured his psyche, Michael Jackson was a gigantic talent, a musical genius, and an unparalleled cultural icon. He redefined popular music and left behind millions of dedicated fans, as well as acolytes who would themselves go on to greatly impact the music of today. But this isn't about them. This is about Brooke Shields, an icon in her own right, who struggled with fame at a young age and so understood Michael Jackson as well as anyone could, who tried to remain the lifeline he so desperately needed, and who, in the end was perhaps the only true friend he ever had. This story is about a girl. About a Girl comes to you from Double Elvis and is executive produced by Jake Brennan and Brady Sadler. It was created, written, and narrated by me, Eleanor Wells, with additional writing and editing by S.I. Rosenbaum. Scott Janovitz is the show's producer and mixer and provides music and editorial support. Audio editing by Matt Tahaney. If you like the show, please subscribe to About a Girl on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And be sure to leave a rating and review. For more great shows from Double Elvis, visit doubleelvis.com. That's doubleelvis.com. 